how God expects spiritual people to respond to the sins of others. How God expects spiritual people to respond to the sins of others. And these have all kind of centered around one verse. We'll expand on that, looking up some other things. But the text is Psalm 119, verse 136. And from the English Standard Version, it reads, My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. My eyes shed streams of tears because people don't keep your law. I can't think of a time in the church when we have more people, and it's a good thing, more people openly professing their love and zeal for the Lord in worship and in song than today. We'll do that tonight, later on in this service, and it's a good thing to do. I mean, there are whole industries, multi-billion dollar a year industries devoted to equipping the church with songs of devotion, songs of worship. And the average churchgoer probably today, morning and night, you, I, we will probably tell the Lord we love him 25 or 30 times today in our church services, in our worship. And then, all of that, I think, if you back it up and think it through, it kind of begs the question, how do I know I love the Lord that much? How do you measure love for the Lord? There's a lot of things we do, scriptural things, good things. We sing, we praise, we lift our hands. It's biblical, it's not just charismatic. All of that's good, but you can do that without loving the Lord. I think we would all agree to that. How do you know you love him? Our text today from the Psalms is really at least one of the, maybe not the only one, but one of the foolproof tests of devotion. Here's a man, writes this psalm, and in this psalm alone, there are 176 verses telling us how incomparably wonderful God's law is in his estimation. He piles up image on image, word upon word, picture upon picture. He can't find enough words to capture his devotion to God and God's ways. That's what the psalm's about. He lives with his whole being fixated on God's righteous ways. It's always in his sight, never leaves. God's word, God's law, never left on the shelf. He treasures it in his heart. And, and here's the point I want to make here. It's in that psalm, significantly in that psalm, because of the beauty of the law of God is incomparably wonderful in the psalmist's eyes, that is what keeps him just so painfully sensitive to the ugliness of sin and ungodliness. It just makes sense. I'm constantly gazing on like gold, like treasure, pondering the wonderful glory of God and his ways. If it's true, 
all it does is it makes ungodliness look that much uglier. I think we can be agreed that's the way it would work. To savor the beauty of godliness is to be broken by the horror of ungodliness. It can't be otherwise. Go to a concert. It's the person with perfect pitch that's bothered by instruments that are out of tune. It's the law of life. Those who are most attuned to the beautiful are most hurt by the ugly. True love never loves everything. Can't be. Opposites always have to exclude each other if true love is to have any meaning. If I love my wife, I hate someone who would harm her. That's how love works. If I love my children, I hate those who would abuse or kidnap. That's the way love works. To love anything truly is to hate its opposite. On the other hand, if I say I love something, but I don't deeply love it, then I'm going to be much less zealous in my determination to protect it. If I don't care deeply about the environment, I don't spend up hours at night worrying about pollution. If I really don't care about the glory of God, I mean, I can sing about it and shout about it, and, but if I really don't care about the glory of God, I won't be upset when his ways are profaned and smudged, misrepresented, ignored. So that's the theme of what we're looking at here tonight. That's the theme. The Christian life must contain more than just the joy of the Lord. It certainly does. But if my faith is genuine, my worship is true, my joy is authentic in the Lord, then here's what will happen. As my worship deepens, as my devotion to God matters more and more, so will my weeping over all that is against God in this world. So let's just take the lid off this and look at it for a few minutes together. Point number one. I want to show you now from different texts. The scriptures offer this consistent pattern. It's not just in our one verse. Godly people weep over the sin in others. Psalm, 130, Psalm 119, 139. My zeal consumes me because my foes forget your words. Now here's, think about this for a minute. This is David. His biggest heartache is not that his enemies are against him. That's not what he says. His biggest heartache is that they are against God. It says, my zeal consumes me. This consumed David. It, it ate him up inside. That his enemies forget God and don't think about his word. That's what bugged David the most. Psalm 119, 158. I look at the faithless with disgust. That can't be right, can it? Do you think maybe that's just scribal error? I look at the faithless with disgust because they do not keep your command. can't be otherwise if you treasure God's glory more than anything else, more than any relationship. 
Strong words. You can't love everything. There are treacherous people who work against God's word. David feels no affinity with them. Exodus 32, 17 to 20. You know this story, Moses and Joshua up on the mountain and God's children worshiping the idol at the foot of the mountain. Exodus 32, 17 to 20. When Joshua heard the noise of the people, as they shouted, he said to Moses, there's the noise of war in the camp. Moses, but he said, it's not the sound of shouting for victory or the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. As soon as they came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. He threw the tablets. These are the tablets. It says the finger of God just came down and carved in Hebrew these commands. Okay, this isn't something you see every day. His anger burned hot threw the tablets of stone out of his hands, broke them at the foot of the mountain, took the calf they had made, burned it with fire, ground it to powder, scattered it on the water, made the people of Israel drink it. Wow. What's easily forgotten when we read those dramatic words, Moses is described, Numbers 12, 3, as the meekest man in all the earth. Really? Moses rarely responded harshly to anyone who wronged him, but, but look at him here. People are breaking the law of God. They don't care about the true God. Moses can't stand that. Are you seeing a pattern here? Ezekiel 9, 1-5. And then he cried in my ears with a loud voice, saying, Bring near the executioners of the city, each with his destroying weapon in his hand. This is God's judgment. Behold, six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with his weapon for slaughter in his hand. And with them was a man clothed in linen with a writing case around his waist. And they went in and stood beside the bronze altar. Now the glory of God of Israel had gone up from the cherub on which it rested to the threshold of the house. And he called to the man clothed in linen who had the writing case at his waist. And the Lord said to him, here it is, pass through the city, through Jerusalem, put a mark on the foreheads, listen, of men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. And to the others, he said in my hearing, pass through the city after him and strike. Your eyes shall not spare, you shall show no pity. It's this strong image, this prophetic message Ezekiel's commanded to proclaim. Israel's going to reap judgment for her moral carelessness, for her wicked ways, but the judgment isn't going to fall on everybody. God's going to go through and he's going to find people that are horrified at the sin, that are heartbroken. He's going to look for people who weep that his law isn't kept. God says, mark those. Mark those. You know why? I know they love me. Everybody was going to the temple. Everybody was offering sacrifices. Everybody was going through the motion. How did God know these people loved him? They wept over the sins of the people. 
There's the telltale sign. People who, quotes, sigh and groan, verse 4. Look for people deeply troubled. I'm almost done. Let me just give you another, maybe a New Testament couple examples. Because this is through the whole Bible. It doesn't get talked about enough. 2 Peter 2, 4 to 9. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, that's, that's the H word, cast them into hell, committed them to change of gloomy darkness, kept until the judgment. So it's hell is not annihilation. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly. Now look at seven. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. So here, Lot was deeply vexed. Not by Sodom's judgment. That's the way we think. How could God do that? That's not what perplexed and tore Lot's heart apart. What he was upset about wasn't God's judgment, but the people's sin. You see the difference? You don't hear about that as much. I know lots of Christians who are almost embarrassed by the severity of God's judgment. It's not the way the Bible paints it. Here's a man who witnessed the total destruction of all those people in Sodom. Here's a man who saw his wife turned to a pillar of salt. Those are hard things to witness. But they're not what Lot found to be the most troubling thing he saw. He saw the people of God spurning him. He saw people rejecting God's ways days after Day after day, and, and, and in spite of all his imperfections, he never got used to it. It, it broke his heart. It, it drove him insane seeing the people breaking the law of God. Philippians 3, 17 to 19. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have seen in us. 18. For many of whom I have often told you. We don't have record of all that. Apparently, Paul went over this with them quite a bit. Of whom I have often told you and, and, and now tell you with tears. I'm weeping again, Paul says. Why? Well, these people walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. I can't stand it. I can't stand it. Paul couldn't even write about people who wickedly rejected Christ without weeping but he wept. That's what the New Testament seems to expect. One more. Just one more. I say the New Testament expects that of Christian people in the church. 1 Corinthians 5, 1 and 2. It's actually reported, this is Paul writing to the church at Corinth, they need correction. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you 
and of the kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife, if it's incest. Look, and, and, and you are arrogant. That doesn't seem to fit there. That doesn't seem to be the right word. You are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from you. I don't have time to develop this really, but please just notice two, two concepts here. Paul says it's arrogant of people to think lightly of sin if they're going to claim to be followers of Christ. Arrogant probably in this sense. Probably they were proud. You see, Pastor Don, we're not one of those churches, those Bible-thumping right-wing churches that just puts condemnation on everybody. We accept everybody. We love everybody. We're not here trying to lay a guilt trip on everybody. Paul says, you're arrogant. How dare you think that way? He says, not to the sinner now, to the church. Can you imagine? You, you people, you ought to all be on your face weeping, mourning. Shouldn't you be mourning? That's the word he uses. To, to not respond like that, he says, it's just, it's just, it's arrogant. There's a whole generation of Christians coming up who think it's the height of spirituality not to be strongly against anything. The idea is that God is somehow pleased as long as no people are ever offended. And let me just be, try and be straight with you. It has never, ever been God's intention to not offend anybody. That has never been his goal. His goal has always been to make people understand his will who don't naturally see things his way. That's God's goal. True, these people, they weren't justifying their own sin, at least not in this case. It was one sinner that's being talked about. They weren't justifying their own sin, but that in itself didn't make them righteous. They didn't care deeply enough about the sin of someone else. After all, they weren't the ones committing the sin. But even though it wasn't their own sin, they were still guilty of sin, even though they weren't committing that sin. It's a fascinating passage. In a different way, they were ignoring God. In a different way, they were ignoring God just as much as this man sleeping with his father's wife. They were just as much ignoring God. How could these people not be horrified? That's what Paul's saying. How could they just live with it? And so this passage, when given its full weight, it says something pretty stunning. It says, I, Don Horbin, I don't have to commit the act of sin to have a share in the sin. There are people who commit the sin, and there are people who justify the kind of sin that gets committed. Both break God's heart. Paul says the second thing in that text is, Paul says Christians should mourn over the sins of others. I don't know why they didn't. 
maybe they thought it maybe they thought it wasn't their place to judge i got a slide you have that slide up there this is a very profound slide if you guys have it put it up on the screen there look what that says how people in our world read the bible today <laughs> Maybe that's what they thought. Who are we to judge? But their love for this man should have pushed them into action. If you have a friend or friends who don't walk in God's ways, you don't love them by being non-judgmental. You don't love them by giving the impression that their wickedness is no big deal. Point number two, it's not that much love. We need to remember why this heartache for the sins of others is so important. It it wouldn't be surprising to say that most Christians think of the Christian life in a strictly personal manner. My primary duty is for myself, to obey God and please God and honor God. And of course, for those who have been following what I'm saying tonight, I'm saying something very different. It's not enough that I try personally to be as holy as I can be because I don't live on a deserted island. There are people around me, many of whom are very wicked, simply like the rest of the world around them, living by the normal accepted standards of the spirit of the age. All sorts of people living like that. And here's where this all gets a bit shocking in terms of the role of the Christian and the role of the church in today's culture. Because I think the dominant view even in the evangelical church, is starting to be, our job is to be tolerant. The thinking is we will reach the culture to the extent that we can identify with the culture. Anything that smacks of doctrine, distinctiveness, it's just putting up one more hurdle for the culture to climb over to get to us. We don't even want the word church anymore. You notice all these places changing their name, the first thing they get rid of is the idea of church. The idea is let's not offend. And yet my Christian walk, I mean, I have to respond to this world somehow. I'm called by the Holy Spirit not to be neutral in this world, but to be broken By the way the world grieves the God I love supremely. I love God's glory more than anything else. When that gets smudged, it bothers me more than anything else. That's the test of love for God. I've often thought of those words in Romans 1, 28 to 32, where it says, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, the gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. They'll come up with something. Disobedient to parents. Parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. What a list. But here's the point I want to get at. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval 
They give approval to those who practice them. So these verses, especially those last ones, they describe the manner in which the people in this fallen world operate. They tell us more than we usually see on the surface. We're not surprised to see the sins, even that list. We're not surprised to see the sins. It's this idea, in one way or another, God rejectors sustain themselves by cheering each other on. That's how it works. People don't like to sin in isolation. They don't want to stand out. So there's a plan, the spirit of the age. There's a plan, a kind of of, uh, spiritual terrorist training camp against God. The plan is not merely to sin. The plan is to make committing sin so common that it's not perceived as wickedness anymore. That's the only goal. People never forget this. The plan of the spirit of the age is to make sin so common and celebrated, it will be more easily embraced by more and more people because it won't look wicked anymore. The plan is to deodorize sin. The plan is to have so many people sinning so often that righteous people are seen as legalistic, narrow-minded, and intolerant. The plan, and it's working, is to make Christians look like the problem. The plan is orchestrated to bring maximum damage to the reputation and glory of God. All the people who need the gospel most will probably never read their Bibles. Many of the people who need the gospel most will rarely go to church. Here's my question. How will these people ever see sin as horribly wicked? How's that going to work? I'll tell you what has to happen. When we talk about being like Jesus, what would Jesus do? You know the bracelet? The first thing we should read when we see what would Jesus do, we should read Luke 19, 41 to 44. Just sit with your eyes closed and just listen deeply to these words. Jesus speaks. When he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. Now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children with you. They will not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. And what I want to say is this. Before we're going to have communion, but listen, listen. Before Jesus shed his blood, he shed his tears. Before he shed his blood, he shed his tears. Came to his own people who rejected him, and he just couldn't help but bawl. We're going to be like Jesus. Shed his tears. call to this church is not just to be holy, 
but to be consistently, deeply, passionately disturbed. My eyes shed streams of tears because the people do not keep your law. God's looking for Christians, not just with pure hearts, but with red eyes. And everyone said, 